0: Welcome to Ramdas Here and Now and I'm Ragu Marcus back again. I've got a talk today from May 1996 and what makes this super interesting uh and timely uh the fact that uh this came out of uh, the library and was pulled by Nathan and uh He remarked that uh, he he made a a remark, it might be a little bit slow getting going, but boy, does it come on like gangbusters! And he was completely right about that. Um, It's about integrating Eastern spirituality to the West, is what uh, the actual topic he was asked to speak about that day. And uh, it turned out in the course of this, I'm listening to this. He said, "Oh, so I?" He says, "I was just hanging out with Tim Leary." the day before, in Los Angeles. Tim is dying, and uh, he um, is taking his death uh, and using it as a celebration. And he talked about how unusual that, that was and how Tim was downloading himself onto his web page. In this is 1996. It's hard to believe how far back we are going now with the web. Huh? And um, so... Uh, it brings an occasion up for me to say something about this wonderful new film called Dying to Know with Tim Leary and Ram Dass. Uh, and the film was done by Gay Dillingham. It just opened in the Bay Area. And I th- I, I'm i unprepared to, t- to link you up, but Dying to Know, there. you just Google that up and you're going to find the film and see where it may be coming to your area, and then eventually be available as a download or a DVD. Uh, I have seen it; it's a wonderful film. Of course, we did help out uh, somewhat with uh, the Ramdas stuff, uh, and uh, uh, I highly recommend it. So that's my little commercial to everybody. In the and this only came because I happened to be listening, and he said I was just hanging out with Tim Leary. It's amazing. Um, so one of the things he talks about here is. The, the I remember him coming back from India the first time and talking about how you can't talk about gurus. You can't talk about devotion, surrender. There's all sorts of terms that are anathema to us in the West. And, uh, and you know, that's quite true all the way to today. Uh, but he says uh, that just the cultural difference... Uh, the ground, uh, the soil that these teachings from the East were planted in here in the West, and he said, well, that soil wasn't that good in the very beginning. There was a lot of resistance. And you start with just the premises and the the premise of uh, how the culture in India and the thousands of years of belief, for instance, in reincarnation. Let's start there. He talks about that, and just that—just imagine that everybody you grew up, and it was absolutely part of, like, your hand. That incarnation was a, reincarnation was a reality, and uh, how that is not in any way uh, common thinking, and it certainly wasn't uh, uh, at, at the time when when Ramdas came back, and if we just say that was a huge time of spiritual growth here in the west and of course not to um make little uh, of uh, of yogananda for instance coming at the turn of the century and, and introducing introducing yoga uh real concept of yoga here in the in america uh but um uh, here the term and he talks about this the term guru uh, here is now synonymous with hustler right so it's just a whole uh, a whole different atmosphere that this um that the teachings from the east have uh, blended in and and we just have a, a certain western uh, cultural habitual tendency that really um Really changes the way in which these teachings can be um, um, trans- transferred. Here, uh, one of them is uh, this is, and this is a good thing. Uh, a, a great uh, example of this, uh, taking a Theravadin meditation from the east, and 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 was made. M- yeah, this there's no absolutes by the way, and you know I say this shit like uh, this is an absolute, and that. This was happening, hundred percent throughout, and and of course that's BS. It's just not true. But there were some cases, and there are cases where we take something, uh, this pure Theravadan meditation tradition, Buddhist tradition, but particularly meditation, and it makes our way into it makes its way into the West as symptom alleviation, and that you know goes along with the, some of the self care, self helps kind of stuff. Uh, so uh, that so he talks a lot about how this all of this gets integrated and what um, and and how we need to have a perspective that hopefully would in the end care for the original purity of uh, and and uh, uh, richness of the teachings that come from the east. It needs a certain kind of care loving care that i think sometimes we don't give it Um, yoga of course being one example but how many people in in the west there's a yoga studio uh, on every corner and from uh, new york to main street uh and and that and of course that's not there are so many people who have gotten so much uh, out of being turned on to not just Hatha Yoga, but yoga, the real yoga. Anyway, not to sermonize over that. Um as he goes along here in this talk, he talks about Seva, which he was part of and the uh gentleman who started the uh, eye operation clinics uh I think uh in uh, southern India and, and uh, that particular person, uh, his uh, his guru was Sri Aurobindo and Mother. And I first went to India, and those of you who have listened to the earliest podcasts here on Ramdas Here and Now would remember uh, me talking about my experiences there, uh, which were quite profound. And, uh, and he just mentions this thing that uh, Aurobindo was such an incredible uh, philosopher and uh, uh, wise, wise man. And one of the things that he said, and this is uh, Ramdas uh, uh, putting it in his own words, as you get out of the way, the higher energy starts to come through you and manifests as a spiritualizing of the earth. It's like Tikkun Olem in Judaism, bringing the spirit into life. It's so poetic. I love it, and uh, isn't that a lot about what we uh, can offer? And Ramdas talks about this. Um, tw- this is when the talk gets really super, uh, as Nathan said. Um, and he talks about, "Aren't we lucky to realize the predicament we are in, to realize who we are, and what the possibilities are for us?" What I see is this circle. That I use everything in my life as a vehicle to work on myself. I work on myself as an offering to others, so I can become an instrument that does not create more suffering. So, uh, this is, if anybody is to was to ask me, what this is all about. That's what it's all about uh, in my uh, experience, and of course, Ramdas is a teacher mentor friend uh that has certainly been something that he he has transmitted to to everybody that he's come into contact with from the moment he came back from india and that is certainly the essence of his uh incredible teachings over these decades great talk um from ramdas from 1996 which is also by the way Geez, I don't know how much uh, many months went by after this talk when he got that stroke. If you can imagine, it's uh, it's going on twenty years. Uh, pretty amazing, <laughs> absolutely amazing. So, uh, thanks for the support, everybody. Please continue to do that. Uh, we need the support. We have uh, we have this beautiful uh, mindfulness meditation course going on. Now free course and uh, and and I want to thank everybody out there who has been supporting um, the continuation of us being able to offer these courses uh, and by virtue of uh, using the donate button on Ramdas.org. So thank you very much. I mean everything that we do is really hand in hand with uh, with our satsang. See you next week on Ramdas here and now.
1: I was supposed to talk tonight <clears throat> about integrating and adapting Eastern stuff to West. And I think it's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about it, actually. <laughs> I had a great moment. Um, a while back, I was invited to speak at a very Tony. Um, I, was, I was invited to help them raise money. I was doing a benefit at a very fancy place that had very fancy people. (laughs) And I came to speak as an after-dinner speaker. So the uh, woman who was in charge of the occasion called me and said, what did I plan to speak about? So I said, well, I mean, I hadn't thought about it till that moment, but I thought, well, I'm doing a book on conscious aging. I said, I'll speak about aging. She said, she was alarmed, she said, oh no. She said, nobody will come to a benefit if the topic is aging. What else can you talk about? So, well, I'll talk about dying because that's a major thing that's happening. Her alarm grew. I said, well, I said, I just did some books on helping. We could talk about suffering. <laughs> So she vetoed, so I said, you make up the title. So the title was Mining the Riches of Life. And I spoke about dying, aging, and suffering. (laughs) And it really split the audience. The ones that knew were delighted, the ones that didn't know were alarmed. One woman got up uh, and she said, you certainly have a dark view of the world, don't you? <laughs> uh, mm. When a few, lose a few. But I've, I've sort of been thinking about the soil onto which yoga came or Eastern stuff came. And because uh, we're an interesting soil here in the West. Uh, pragmatic and uh, very um, well we're, we're what I'd call a non-traditional society which is interesting I mean because there's not a simple rule book to play by and um, in traditional societies there's great places for elders because they have to pass down the tradition in a non-traditional society they're obsolete And um, you're coming to a... I'll tell you how interesting if you push the edge of this society. Yesterday, I was down in Los Angeles with my buddy Tim Leary. Now, Tim is representing something so exquisite, it's leaving me breathless. First of all, he's doing something for dying that hardly anybody else in the game is doing. He's turning it into a celebratory event which is something most of us are scared scared to deal with. We're willing to turn it from something horrible into something, yes, you know. Something psychodynamically supportive. (laughs) And then the next one is to turn it into emptiness. I mean, what the hell's happening? Nothing's happening. You dying, ha, interesting. Is it fun? Yeah. Uh, Everybody takes it so seriously. You know, they think it was real. (laughs) See, there's that plane. But then Tim's taking it out another thing. He's just saying, let's celebrate the life process of dying, you know? And he's, and if you read an article in Time Magazine last week, really, for a a regular magazine to do this, and do it not as a great put down, but as, isn't this interesting sort of thing, this curious fellow doing this? Because he now says that he is going to die on the internet, all right? (laughs) See, he's been doing two very interesting things. If you're a philosophical materialist in this culture, you want to figure out how to die, that's interesting. So he's done two things. One is if we are information, he is downloading himself onto his web page. <laughs> all right? So he has a whole staff of cyber folk <laughs> typing away and copying into the machine Boxes of files that stretch back 20 years. I mean, he's a collector, a real rat collect, rat pack. And they're putting in all these incredible letters with Gerald Hurd and Aldous and this person and that poet and, uh, and pictures and everything. So I, when I want to see Tim now, to the extent he's information after he leaves his body, I can just, you know, boot up. So to speak. <laughs> Boot me up, Tim. <laughs> now just in case we are more than information, he's got a backup because then under those conditions we're the brain and he's having his brain put in liquid nitrogen. Cryonics. The Cryocare Company, I think it's called. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> So I said to Timothy, well you know, I think you're, uh, I'm sure you're covering your bets, but I'll tell you, it's more interesting than that. I mean, you know, because the soul is, well, you know, you're yogis. So I said to him, but it's gonna be interesting. I said, how the hell do I know? You know, it's all a mystery, but it's gonna be interesting. One of us is gonna turn out to be right probably. Later, one of us will say to the other, see, (laughs) I told you, you you're only your brain. (laughs) But what I saw was him playing out the funny myth of the culture, that we are our material beings, that we are our material beings. And I think um, it's fun to, and my job was to merely see, is he suffering? You know, I mean, he's got every chemical (laughs) It's listed in Newsweek and Time, you know. So many Dilaudid's, so many... (laughs) He's not suffering. (laughs) (laughs) Which is another celebratory thing, you know. Do you know that George Soros put up... He's that multi-billionaire. He put up five million dollars to change medical attitudes towards the use of pain-killing medicines just to get them out of the moral stance that we can't have you becoming an addict on the very day before your death. (laughs) Isn't that bizarre? It is so bizarre. I mean whether you want to or not I'd stay as conscious as I could and take as little as I could, that's what I'd do. I think. (laughs) When I come times, who knows? So when I look at this society as soil into which the Eastern things came, there are a lot of ways in which it didn't find such good soil at first. I mean, um, like in India, everybody just assumes reincarnation. Can you imagine having a whole culture in which everybody thinks that's true? I mean it you try using the word guru' in the West. I mean are you which hustler are you talking about? It's become synonymous with hustler or with somebody putting on airs something like that, or with somebody that means well I mean guru is a, a, a a teacher points the way. The guru's just like the door, the door jamb. You look into the guru and you see your own truth. You see your own faith. The guru is a perfect mirror. Shows you who you aren't. So you rent a guru to show you who you aren't until you cop to who you are and then you are the guru. There's only one of it to begin with. The guru knows that. The guru doesn't think you're real, only you think you're real. You're relatively real, I'll allow. I don't want to threaten you because, see, that's why I had three levels. Because people can't go from the egos directly into non-differentiated awareness. The Dzogchen people say you can, but I think it's hard. Because people don't want to let go of their separateness so fast. But here you got a second try, you got a second level, you got soul. So you're still somebody. See, And you're more interesting than you were before when you thought you were somebody real or somebody special. So I go to India. When I went to Benares the first time, I had just come over from the States, and I had my Western mind. And I came into Benares, which is the city of dying, and there were thousands of people walking through the streets on bony legs, not a bit of body weight, other just bones. They were walking bones with their loincloths, and tied on their loincloth was a little, pouch with the coins or rupees for the funeral wood for their fire. And they had begging balls, some of them, and they were ulcerated or they had leprosy or they had cancer, whatever. And I was so freaked by that. I had my travelers checks, you know, my hotel room, my visa, my American passport. I went home, I went back to the hotel and I hid under the bed. I was so upset by that. Then I ended up meeting my guru and spending the winter in India and becoming um, India eyes. (laughs) Whatever you do to me, whatever you do to somebody, whatever India does. And some months later now, I'm back in Benares. And now I understand Benares is the city where, when you leave your body in Benares, you are free. It's, it's an incredible uh, yogic feat to have done this thing. So I'm feeling very different about these people now. So I'm not so freaked that I, I'm, I may have brought a lot of coins and I'm giving coins, and, but I'm not so freaked that I can't look into their eyes before I couldn't look into their eyes it was they were just symbolically too powerful for me and now I look into their eyes and some of them are looking at me with pity imagine that they're looking at me because I'm wandering around the world not knowing where I am I'm like a hungry ghost from their point of view you know they know just where they are (laughs) Just where they are. Is this okay for you folks? I mean, are we here, is it? Okay, I just want to check. <laughs> See, I, what happened was over the years after 68, um, I'd go to India almost every other year and I'd go and I'd hang out with old Indians. The grandmas and the, the... And they'd sit around singing bhajan in the evening with no electricity passing the harmonium and the tablas around smoking chillum and just singing into the night in this village. With broken teeth and they, some of them couldn't sing on key and who cared? It was so spiritually precious. Then I'd come back to the States, and the people I'd hang out with would be somewhere between 15 and 25 or 30. The old people weren't the least bit interested in anything that I had found in India. And in India, the young people all wanted to talk to me about MIT and how soon they could get here. And I felt like it was a huge serpent that was going down and coming up, an evolutionary serpent. And now the next level of person who could spiritually use what was available would probably be born in Brooklyn, as she thinks she was. (laughs) But you wrote about that already. (laughs) The Yoga Journal's not going to get home free, believe me. (laughs) And uh, this is a Christian country. I mean, we can all stay, but... It's, it's a Christian country, and, and therefore, a Hin Buju like me has a, has, you know, hanging on by my nails. Huh. And so, a lot of what the East represented was threatening. It's threatening if you are trying to live by a set of beliefs Because beliefs don't keep you warm on a cold night. It's got to be beyond belief. It's got to be faith. It's got to be direct experience. It's got to be, yeah. I believe in. If that's a mind thought, believe me, when you're dying, mind thoughts (laughs) go awry, if not before.
0: Hmm.
1: It's interesting, in writing this book on conscious aging, trying to write about Losing your mind—the fear of losing your mind. Since I haven't, <laughs> what was I saying? <laughs> There's a great um, uh, film that the uh, Alzheimer's Society puts out. Do they generally around the country? I, I think many of you saw it. It was a uh, uh, Oscar nominee, wasn't it, as a documentary? It was called um, "Diary of a Dutiful Daughter," huh? Complaints, Complaints of a dutiful daughter. Uh, absolutely beautiful, beautiful. It's a um, the mother is a, a intellectual liberal, probably communist, old communist, married to a professor, who starts to um, Blues her marbles and her daughter who is a lesbian in San Francisco I gather moves the mother out to be there with her and there, she's in a separate apartment and slowly the mother is kind of um, writing down a hundred notes to remind herself to go to the dentist and things like that and the daughter is freaking and the, do- the mother gets to the point where she's saying to the daughter so you tell me you're, you're my daughter isn't that interesting? And the daughter is freaking, you know, I. you know. And then the daughter gets the message. She realizes that the person that's suffering in this whole situation is her. And she's suffering because she's trying to make believe, she's trying to make her mother who she was, but that isn't who she is. And so the daughter lets go and goes with it. Like, yeah, isn't it interesting that I'm your daughter? You know, instead of you, you know. And the 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 wild part of that film, from my point of view, is that after she can't any longer be in her apartment because she can't keep this level of plane of consciousness together enough to keep it together, the daughter, with much shrieking and all this, finds a way to finds a nursing home for Alzheimer's people, and the mother goes there, and you go through the whole thing you have about nursing homes and all that stuff and the nursing home director says to the daughter just leave your mother don't leave any of her belongings here like no pictures no nothing and that goes so against the grain of the Western consciousness and the next day the daughter comes back and there's the mother in some man's gym suit she never wore a gym suit in her life you know and she's got a pocketbook with a penny in it and she is radiantly happy, obviously. And the daughter looks at her and and the mother says, the mother's walking down the hall saying, I'm free, I'm free. You know, now, when you play with planes of consciousness, the whole business of mental health and kundalini and yogic changes of consciousness, that interplay becomes That's part of the interface of the East and the West. I mean, that's a real part of it. That most of the people who are saints in India would be hospitalized in the West. (laughs) Because there's no superstructure to support them, being nuts. Ananda Mai, she was doing cartwheels in her yard, this very dignified Bengali woman. (laughs) I mean, and they didn't say, oh, she's lost it her husband became her first devotee it was a great moment that just reminded me of a great moment Um, I have a brother who has had a lot of mental difficulties and one of the difficulties was that he decided he was Christ and so (laughs) as Christ I mean it you may not think it is a difficulty, but I'll show you. Uh, so uh, as, a, as Christ, he stole things and so because he needed them. And he got put into um, a mental hospital. Actually, my father had him put in the mental hospital. When my father found him sitting there in a yogic posture, naked, with eight elderly ladies around him, worshipping him, And my brother was burning his money and his credit cards. So I said to my father, what was it that made you put him in the mental hospital? I mean, which of those things? You know, all of the above or? (laughs) So. So now he's in a mental hospital and the the psychiatrist has left orders. He's not to see anybody unless I'm unless the psychiatrist is present. So I come to visit my brother. I am in my dress, with my beads, with my beard. My brother is in a blue serge suit with a tie, okay? The psychiatrist is in his white coat with his clipboard. This is the cast of characters in this small little drama we're playing out. So my brother and I are having a discussion about the psychiatrist. We're, We're... we're, we're reflecting upon whether he will ever know he's God. Mm-hmm. And the psychiatrist is writing. <laughs> and then my brother says to me, I don't understand it. He said, in a few minutes they're going to let you out. <laughs> I said, well Leonard, you're Christ. He said, yes. I said, well I'm Christ too. He said, no, you don't understand. I said, that's why they're locking you up. (laughs) It's really interesting. The minute you tell somebody they aren't it, watch out, watch out. The minute you try to leverage yogic stuff for power, anything, personal power, boy oh boy, don't smell the flowers too long. My guru was a very down-to-earth person and what he said about Siddhis spiritual powers were very simple. He said, Siddhis are pig shit. Isn't that far out? And yet Siddhi's poured out of him. Isn't that funny? We were singing to Nityananda a little while ago, and I was just thinking of the Nityananda. That I mean, Nityananda is eternally blissful, but I was just thinking of Muktananda's guru, Nityananda, who was a really far-out Baba. I mean, (laughs) he was out there. He stayed in a tree for seven years, uh, you know, throwing leaves down and stuff. And this is the great, I love this outrageous story. Um, Nityanand is having some roads built by workmen to various villages. And he tells them, at the end of the day, go home, and on your way home, any rock you turn over will have your two rupees, which is your day's wage. You can't pick up two rocks and get four rupees, but it'll be any rock you pick up. So they'd go home and they'd pick up the rocks, and they all got to expect this. This is the guru, you know. This is See, in India, this can happen. Here, it's already suspicious. <laughs> so, but India's changing. So, finally, the a local um, magistrate and his l- s- lieutenant come, and they say to Nityananda, we're very concerned. We hear somebody is... Uh, making money here, counterfeiting. Nityananda said, oh, no. Yes, because your workmen all have these new, fresh bills. And we wonder, could you tell us where, you, where they're coming from? Nityananda says, oh, of course. And he wallows off into the woods. And they follow after him. And he goes to a lake. And in the lake are crocodiles and he calls a crocodile and the crocodile comes over and he opens the crocodile's mouth and he starts pulling bills out of it. And the policeman fled. So, but India is changing. So finally the a local um, magistrate and his <coughs> s- lieutenant come and they say to Nityanada, we're very concerned. We hear somebody is uh, making money here, counterfeiting. nityananda said, oh no. Yes, because your workmen all have these new, fresh bills. And we wonder, could you tell us where where they're coming from? Nityananda says, oh, of course. And he wallows off into the woods, and they follow after him, and he goes to a lake. And in the lake are crocodiles. And he calls a crocodile, and the crocodile comes over, and he opens the crocodile's mouth, and he starts pulling bills out of it. (laughs) And the policeman fled. Now, I wasn't there. <laughs> However, to me, I can allow that. Okay. So I had this great meeting with um, Feynman, you know, the Nobel Prize winner physicist. He's died, but a beautiful, beautiful far-out man. And I was telling him miracle stories. I was telling him about my guru and all the stuff that I've published in Miracle of Love. And each one I'd tell him, and we were sitting at John Lilly's swimming pool. And each one I'd tell him, he'd think for a while. He'd say, yes, I can accept that. Good. And I'd tell him a more outrageous one. Yes, I can accept that. So finally I told him this one where Maharaji was in Allahabad, and the people from Kampur said, we are unveiling the new Hanuman Murti tomorrow, Maharaji, please come. And he says, no, I have no time for that. I'm not going to go. So they all went home disappointed. And the next morning, Maharaji's in Allahabad, he has to be put in a room in his bedroom. He says, now lock the doors and stand guard. I don't want to be bothered. I have business to attend to. So they lock him in the room and there's bars on the windows and the whole thing. And then at noon, he screams to open the door, and he comes out, and the day goes on. And late that evening, the people from Kampur arrive, and the people from Allahabad say to the people from Kampur, how was the um, unveiling? And they said, oh, it was wonderful. And the people from Allahabad said, how could it be wonderful if Maharaji wasn't there? They said, don't be silly, he was there that he arrived and we honored him and fed him and he was there and he said he was there for quite a while and then he said don't follow me and he left and he went into the woods. So both the Allahabad and the Kampo people came before Maharaji. The Allahabad's man said Maharaji we locked you in that room and the Kampo man started to tell that story and Maharaji looked at the Kampo man and said you're a liar, get him out of here, he lies. Now he didn't lie. Maharaji would just do this thing with smoke and mirrors all the time. You know, you can't believe that. He'd leave you always confused. So Feynman thought about that. He says, no. He said, I can't accept that. That means he's in two places at the same moment. If I accept that, the basic assumptions of my whole system are out the window. I'm sorry, I can't accept that. I said, well, you have a problem. This is part of what the East and West issue is, by the way. I mean, I'm playing with it from a lot of different levels to deal with it. And what has it's interesting, I was just thinking about um, recently, I was with uh, Johnny Cabot Zinn, whom I really admire a great deal. I think he's done some really brilliant and fine work, as has Herb Benson. But I, you know, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking how interesting that meditation makes its, Theravadan Buddhism, makes its way into the system through symptom alleviation. I mean, can you hear that? That's the way that's coming in. In other words, our society is very much still what it was, you know, and... The interesting question is how much you, or to watch how you adapt it into the system and what is lost or what is gained in it. Like, um, some of the groups that have come from India with, or or, studying Tibetan Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, or um, Zen groups have remained extremely rigid in order to hold on to their lineage because they realized that was their lifeline to the truth and that was what they felt empowered to transmit and in order to transmit that they were of the traditional system where to transmit it you keep the system as purely defined as you can for that transmission to occur. And I have honored these lineages tremendously. I mean, I really have honored them and I've done lots of benefits for them because it feels to me that it's a tremendous richness that comes into the West if these come in in their purest forms. Now, there has been a lot of movement in our society to to say they're all one. But there's a timing issue involved in that. It's the issue of diversity, actually. Like I was, um, we had a retreat for burned out social activists. Um, The SAVA Foundation had this retreat. And um, the first day, uh, Paul Gorman and I were basically leading this retreat. And the first night I was going to speak, but what happened was the, uh, the um, people of color got together and they decided, what is this bullshit that these two white men are leading this scene and we are, and it turned into a pitch battle and the whole program was canceled. I mean, we all stayed there. But the format was canceled and for a day there were just these incredible power meetings and caucuses and everything. And at one point I made the mistake of saying, well, we're all one. And one of the really beautiful women said, don't give us that bullshit. <laughs> now for yogis, you, you all hear that and appreciate the problem (laughs) and what it reminded me of was a story that Zalman Shakter told me about Shlomo Kalbach he said that Shlomo was in uh, Jerusalem to give a concert in a prison and he asked only the Jewish people in the prison came and he asked where the Muslims were and he was told that they weren't coming and so he said he was going over to the Muslim side or something like that and he started to be there with them and sing and play his guitar and, his, and one woman he found out had lost her son in battle and so he did the Kaddish with her and that so opened the heart they met through the heart and at that point Zalman said he said you know he said before we can be together we have to grieve with one another we have to grieve with one another and it was interesting because what we did at this retreat for burned-out activists was we created a fishbowl and then every segment that felt that it was wrong had a chance to come into the center and express to each other what that felt like to be black to be gay to be white males white males came in as a group because they felt put upon for their (laughs) chauvinistic pigness (laughs) And it was interesting, that took maybe two days. And by the end of the retreat, we were so together as a group. The unity was so deep because everybody felt heard. Everybody felt heard, felt listened to. One of the big issues that um, I see is a distinction between cultures which focus on personality and cultures which focus on role. Like there was this young guy in the village that I spend time in in India whose marriage, he was about 23, his marriage had been arranged by the local astrologer between his parents and the girl's parents. He had never met the girl he would meet her for about 10 minutes before the marriage they would be married with masks of Radha and Krishna and I said to him and then they would move into his father's home and he would work in his father's hotel business and the his daughter though his wife would serve his mother say goodbye to her family and this was and I said is this bothering you I said what if you don't like her and he didn't know what I was talking about. Now, can you in this culture imagine that? He didn't know what I was talking about. In this culture of what do I need, what do I want, am I getting it, am I getting enough, how can I get more? I got it but it doesn't feel good. (laughs) I taught, um, I was teaching in Japan last year And I was doing a retreat at Mount Fuji. And it was incredible. I mean, I must honor the Japanese. They have rolled down to perfection. You say, sing Kirtan, they sing Kirtan. They don't ask, can I sing? Should I sing? Is it my thing to sing? They sing. You say dance, they dance. You say, get enlightened, they get enlightened. I mean, it's a no bullshit operation. I'm a great appreciator of role identities, because I think the game is to move in and out of roles so lightly without basically identifying with role. Am I talking too long? It's 25 of 10. Uh, what do you want me to do? I, I was supposed to stop at 9.30. Would somebody in a, at a power tell me what to do? I can go on for a few moments? Right. I think he said 10 minutes. He, I think it wasn't stop. It was 10 minutes. Hmm. Um, one of the most interesting connections that I have at the moment or have had in the past uh, 15 years is uh, Dr. Venkateswamy, and Dr. Venkateswamy is um, he's a man from Madurai, India and um, in his youth he was trained to be a gynecologist and then he was in the army and during the war and he got severely arthritically crippled so that they never thought he'd walk again and his hands are all gnarled like this and his feet are gnarled and um it was incredible arthritis and he was in his 20s and then he just got back but he saw he couldn't be a gynecologist very well So he became an eye surgeon (laughs) and he had special instruments made for his hands and he performed very delicate eye surgery and he was a professor of ophthalmology. And then he retired and in um, 1972 I guess, maybe 672 or so. He started a small clinic, about 24 beds in it. And now in 1995, it is the uh, biggest eye hospital in the world, biggest eye hospital. They do 80,000 cataract surgeries a year in that hospital. And in that hospital, 70% of the patients are treated free, paid for by the other 30% who get a better bedroom now what's interesting about this story I'm not just giving you a rap for giving money to save them is because dr. Venkateswami is a very powerful devotee of Sri Aurobindo Sri Aurobindo and the mother I'm sure you're familiar with those names and in Sri Aurobindo's um, cosmology which he has written (laughs) extensively about (laughs) Um, one goes through in the transformation of consciousness through different levels of mind and uh, he articulates a number of the planes of consciousness which I told you we were going to reduce to three but he has lots of them and you get up into the over mind and it gets really heady out there and then what happens is the higher energy as you get out of the way the higher energy starts to come down through you out through you and it manifests in terms of spiritualizing earth it's like Tikkun uh, Olem in Judaism basically. it's it's transforming bringing the spirit into life and he is his whole all he does is read Aurobindo and the mother meditate and run this thing which has now become so big that he now he's be, he's been honored by everybody for everything and it's now um, I'll give you one tasty little example you're still here or is it too pushing you it's not as joyous but you're still here you've got a big week, weekend coming up, so I won't drink. But listen to this one. In India, when you have your cataract taken out, in the United States, when you have it taken out, they take a little plastic thing and they slip it in, which is another lens. And then if you have lousy vision, you have 20-20 vision. So after cataract surgery, they put in what's called an intraocular lens. This is a little plastic thing that's shaped just perfectly, and in the United States, it costs about $280 for a lens. So when the pharmaceutical companies here have uh, lenses, they've got new models or something like that, they give away the old ones as a tax write-off. So we take all those, and we take them to India, all right, as a tax thing, and... But when we take them to the hospital, even though the hospital has 70% poor and 30% paying, generally what happens, not only in that hospital but all over India, is that the rich people get the lenses. Because the option to getting the lens is to get these thick, opaque glasses that look like the bottom of old Coca-Cola bottles, you know, the really thick ones. So, in the past four years, we have built an intraocular lens eye factory in Madurai India that makes the same quality of lenses as are made in the United States in fact it's a United States operation a turnkey operation that we just moved over there basically makes them for six dollars a lens and they're only made for nonprofits so now the poor people get the lenses as well Now, what we've got is Dr. V kept saying, you know, I don't understand why we shouldn't take on all preventable and curable blindness in the world. You know, like Africa and, you know, Tibet, where everywhere. He said, you know, in the United States, it's amazing. You have everywhere you're within walking distance of a hamburger. Why can't medical care be provided like that? He says, it's only a, fran- it's a franchising opera. He says, it's, <laughs> it's just a, a thing. He said, I want to meet the head of McDonald's. <laughs> he said, we should be able to do this like McDonald's doesn't. So now he's got the Lions International have given him a million dollars for an international training institute. The World Bank's put up 40 million for changing India with him as the head consultant. I mean and as far as he's concerned, Aurobindo is doing this incredible trip and the fact is that's the way it is. (laughs) It really is interesting and I'm one of the few people that he can hang out with that isn't caught in the storyline and that's just enjoying the way the energy is moving in the system. I'll cut to my chase so you can get home. Oh, God, all this wonderful stuff you're not going to hear. Oh, Jesus, that that was particularly good. Well, what the hell? I didn't have anything good. You knew it all anyway. I would like to just say to you, Since there are here many teachers That the art of teaching is the work you do on yourself And that if you understand that cycle well enough what I began to see Was that everything I tried to do To the extent that it had in it Attachments in my mind That I was not Simultaneously aware of everything that I tried to do that way, in some level or other, created suffering. With, and I did it from as good a righteous place as I could do it. That was what was so weird about it. And I saw that I had to work on myself. Take being with somebody that's dying. I mean, at one level, it's somebody that's dying, at another level, it isn't. How much do you get caught in there, somebody that's dyingness, And if your mind gets caught in that, so that becomes the dominant reality, that's all, you're offering that person a mirror for that reality, and you're keeping them stuck in that thing. And you realize finally that what you want to do is work on yourself to become an environment to allow other beings to do what they need to do how presumptuous of me to think I know how somebody should die but I can create an environment where if they want to come out and play there's nothing in me that's going to keep them stuck inside they can stay there if they want to but they don't have to so I realize that I have a a lot of work to do on myself I'm not it's not a heavy thing it's quite light it is the best work I mean if I were gonna say anything at the beginning of fellow yogis aren't we lucky aren't we lucky to realize the predicament we're in to realize who we are and what the possibility is I mean this group if none other but what I see is this circle that I use everything I'm doing in my life as a vehicle to work on myself including this moment I work on myself as an offering to others so that I can become an instrument that does not create more suffering. So I use this to work on myself, I work on myself as an offering to this. So what this is, what I offer you is the product of what I have been doing on myself. And you can feel in you places I'm stuck, places you're stuck, etc all I want to do is invite you to keep the dialogue open about who you are and what you think you're doing keep it open 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 and listen 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 because that's my optimum strategy and what I do is I surround people who bust me who bust me who show me when I got out of hand because it's hard not to sip your own whiskey you know, enough people tell you you're real. If there's any need in you to be real that way, you buy that projection web. And, and you've got to be able to walk through the projective field of, oh, you're so wonderful, or you're, you've done this terrible thing to our youth through drugs, or whatever the projection is that's coming at you. Because they're coming at you all the time. I mean, everybody you know thinks you're somebody. And they're all like Typhoid Mary it's really bizarre we keep locking into well I'm good and I'm on the spiritual path it's like Lot's wife you know know. I was going around a circle of elders and I said to one woman what are you what are you doing here she says I'm a seeker I said why don't you be a finder (laughs) okay that's it my ten minutes is up let me look for a closing (laughs) Uh, okay let me just get a straight I didn't give you all the really good stuff I should have given you but that's all right. you'll forgive me because really what I'm doing is I'm saying I'm a westerner who went to the east who tasted something so rich and so pure it bugs the shit out of me when I see it being sold without the true guarantee of the thing behind it And I think that if you are sellers of dharma, you damn well better be dharmic. And it's really, you know, it's hard. It's hard. Because what happened was we touched something very pure. And it's just like that story of God and Satan walking down the street. And there's a shiny object and God picks it up and he says, ah, truth. And Satan says, here, give it to me, I'll organize it. And you watch, you watch what the mind does to the stuff. And I've watched yoga practices that have the potential of deep transformation in human beings being marketed as something so much less than that, being marketed as something that'll make you healthy and wealthy and wise, but not free. And I'll tell you, the only game in town is becoming free. And don't confuse internal freedom and external freedom. External freedom is just external freedom. You want it for other people. For you, you take what you get. But the game is internal freedom. Not getting high, but being free. There is no plane you cannot stand on. You have to realize there is nowhere to stand in freedom. You're everywhere all at once. You're in your human heart with all its pain and all of its grief and all of its joy. You're in the mind with a brilliant intellect. I'm just going on the internet now and I'm looking at all this information and oh God it's just la. Ah. but it's another plane of consciousness and it's a plane we can dance with. We don't have to say that's all we are, but we can learn how to dance in that form as well. Learning how the. the oh, can I have two more? Three more? If we can just have... hmm. No. Yeah, no, yeah. No, I want to stay just with the... I came back from India and I couldn't tell people about my guru because their, their most reaction was either scorn or belittling or jealousy. And I felt like I was creating suffering just by telling them about this gift that I had received. And that felt really weird to me. Because in the West, the minute we hear about something tasty, we want to possess it. Uh, the The thing I was going to tell you about is about the Gita. The Gita's injunction to not be identified with being the actor and not being attached to the fruits of the action is such a profound teaching because you say well what else is there if you're in the West that's what you would say what else is there I mean isn't the West all about being identified with being the actor and being attached to the fruits of the action it is as far as I can see you say well what else is there there is Dharma there is you are quiet enough to tune deeply enough to hear exactly to allow the manifestation to come forth it's nothing personal (laughs) you're not that personal don't make it such a personal story it's not that interesting it's not that interesting what you start to do is like the Tao. you begin to feel your way into the harmony of things You feel, well, if I have this skill, I'll use it this way. If I can sing, I'll sing. If I can massage, I will massage. If I can... But never are you forgetting what Amanda Ma said. I did all this stuff, but basically, this was all my dialogue with my beloved. It's all the dialogue with the beloved. It's making love. The whole process of sadhana and of living... To me, my entire life is my sadhana. And in each situation it is to listen to hear the Dharma not with a heavy well what's the Dharma here just to shut up and listen and tune and to find your form find the form and how it comes out is how it comes out I visit somebody and afterwards they say a great saint visited us I visit somebody else and they say, he came and, you know, I expected so much and nothing happened. It was a real waste. To me, that's just the play of God. It's of. I did it as well as I could do it. That was the Dharma part of it. Now, did I do it? I work with that line, one does nothing and nothing is left undone. It's a line from the Tao, it is a beauty. That solves burnout, just that one line. That's as good as the line as Emmanuel's line of what's about death, tell everybody it's absolutely safe. (laughs) That's an exquisite one-liner. Said it's like taking off a tight shoe. So okay, have a great yoga conference and I just suggest to you that you and I are carrying something very beautiful and very precious. And we know that because we've each tasted and touched something. And to me, my life, I don't know what else life is about, once you've tasted that, than to become an instrument of yoga, an instrument of union, an instrument of transcendence, an instru- One of being non-attachment in the presence of attachment in the way that others can find freedom through you. I honor you all and wish you a happy weekend. Namaste.
0: This podcast is brought to you by the Love, Serve, Remember Foundation and ramdas.org.